Well, some of you may have noticed when you pulled in our driveway, some of you maybe didn't, that we're building a, a uh, snow fence out there out of storage sheds. Did you see that? When you leave, you might want to take a look. Uh, in all seriousness, that storage shed, we bought a second storage shed. We're going to remodel it. We're going to put a wall and doors in it, and we're going to insulate it and heat it and side the interior, and it's going to become Pastor Casey in my office. So we've grown to a storage unit. Bless God. And it's going to be the fanciest storage unit you've ever seen. So just continue to pray that the process goes well in getting all of the people here that we need to do to have, get it ready for us. And interesting, it happened yesterday when they came. Dakota Storage is out of the Millbank area of South Dakota. And uh, when the guy pulled in the yard here in the, in the parking lot, it's, on a, it's driving a semi-tractor with a big trailer with a 32-foot shed on it. And, and the first thing I noticed is, and uh, I believe Chanel saw this too, is it, he's got scriptures written on his tractor. You know, one of them was, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And the other one, I forget what it was, but I remember it was in the Gospel of John. And then he had another thing with a picture of a cross, and then he had just had the name Jesus Christ on it. And if you talk to him for more than a moment, you realize he's got a different brogue than most of us Minnesotans. He came from the Heterite colony, originally in South Dakota. So we're visiting a little bit, and, and finally we get to talking about the, the church, and I make a comment about his uh, scriptures on his tractor. And finally he says to me this question. What... What do you guys believe? Why, why, why does VCC, he didn't use that VCC thing, why does VCC exist? So I got to share with him some of the things that we believe are absolutely necessary for a church in terms of salvation by grace through faith, the inerrancy of the scriptures and all these things. And he started sharing with me why he left the colony and how he is so glad that there's churches like ours, and he attends one similar, I guess, up in that Millbank area. But it caused me again to think, and I had already been preparing my message throughout the week, about why does VCC exist? Why do we exist? If somebody asked you that question, what would you tell them? Why do we exist? Well, if you know our mission statement, it goes something like this. VCC exists to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. To discover the abundant life in Christ. Well, to do that, you have to discover who Jesus is. You have to discover what he did for us through the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. We have to discover that in him, when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, acknowledging him as the only acceptable sacrifice for my sin, and receiving that gift as we confess our sin. Once we have done that, the door is opened to the abundant life. We need to make that connection. And we at BCC, if you looked in the foyer, you'd see we provide opportunities for people to connect with God and with others. An opportunity to connect with God is simply the gospel, the gospel message, providing a place, an environment, where we can share the good news of Jesus Christ. And also connect with other like-minded believers. You know, we all have different personalities. I know a couple different people 
they're no longer in the church, but they liked us when we were a small little group. They didn't like it so much when we became a little bit larger group. Now, I get that. We're all different. But you know what? As we increase in numbers, that means we're advancing the kingdom of God. We would love to see every wall of the church have to be blown out and have a larger church. And even more, we'd love to see more churches planted, more people sent out. We want to see the kingdom advanced. And it begins with connecting and relationships here in the body of Christ. And we believe in growth, growing in that relationship, growing within, in the intimacy with Christ, growing in relationship with each other. Now, some of us would say, I cut enough friends already. Thank you. We need brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the Word of God tells us not to forsake the gathering of the brethren, not so we can have a nice count on Sunday morning, because he knows what we need. He loves us to encourage us to gather so we can build one another up, to strengthen one another. He knows those things. And then we want to provide opportunities to serve, whether it's serving God in in many different ways that he individually calls you to, serving the local church and whatever he calls and gifts you and leads you into, and serving the world. We are called to serve the world, whatever that looks like, wherever it might take us. And we need to remember that when we look at the scripture that our mission statement comes from in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come to give life that they may have it abundantly. Or I come to give the abundant life. What we need to realize there is there is a continual spiritual warfare going on all around us. As we are wanting to walk into the abundant life that Christ died for, we got a devil, we have an enemy who's trying to hold us back. And he does it primarily through lies and deception. That's where he works. He works on your mind. He works on your mind almost exclusively. He can attack us physically, but it's this mind. And he wants us to believe the lies. And that will prevent us, even if we're saved, it'll prevent us from walking into the abundant life that Christ has for us. So the question oftentimes then comes, well, what the heck does the abundant life look like? Am I living the abundant life? Are you living the abundant life? The world would tell you, unless you're filthy rich, have great big accounts in the bank somewhere, own lots of stocks and bonds, and live in a great big house and drive really fancy cars and dress in nothing but the brand name clothing, you're not living the abundant life. Well, hopefully we understand that is a lie from the pit of hell. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a different way in just a few moments. The abundant life, Bob mentioned Galatians 5.22 this morning in adult Bible class. When you look at that verse, it says, The fruit of the Spirit are joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Man, when those things, that fruit that's already in us as a believer... If you might say, I don't have much of that, you've got all of it in there. The Holy Spirit, however that all works, when the Holy Spirit moves in and indwells you, that fruit is present. What we need to do is remove whatever obstacles are in us, preventing it from being manifested in the abundant life. And most of the time, that are lies and strongholds that we believe up here. And we get our eyes off of the Lord. And our focus is now on something else. You know, for whatever reason, and God always has good reasons, He's chosen the church, the body of Christ, and specifically, in one sense, the local church 
to continue to advance his kingdom. He's using people like us, you and me, to advance the kingdom. He's using people like us to connect other people with God. He's using us to build relationships so that they can grow in their relationships. He uses us to serve in advancing the kingdom. He's chosen to use us. And, of course, he's given us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct us. So it's not like as a group of believers or as a local church, we're going to go out and conquer the world for, for our sake. We want to go out and conquer the world and advance the kingdom for God's sake. Advancing the kingdom. Not that he needs us, but he's chosen to use us. And as the local church, we need to be being led by the Holy Spirit. So anything I say today, remember, if it doesn't start with being led by the Holy Spirit, if it's just something we're going to do, the efforts of man, it has going, it's not going to have any lasting fruit. It might feel good, and it might look good from the outside, but unless it's an internal thing and we're being led by the Holy Spirit, we want to build eternal things. And that's what our goal is. And you can do it in so many different ways. You know, at VCC, we love to see people get saved, reaching the lost. We love to see people get set free of strongholds and bondages, things that that the enemies got us believing from our past experiences, from lies we hear from our culture, whatever. We love to see people walking in that kind of freedom that can only come from Christ. We love seeing people develop a relationship with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. And hopefully, regardless of our personality quirks, we love getting to love the body of Christ. We may not like everything about everybody. We may not even like that person at all. But if you're a Christian, no matter how much you don't like me, you've got to love me. And that's what we, we're called to live that way to live in love. That's what we want and desire for VCC. And we do this in many, many different ways. We are trying to advance the kingdom in so many different ways. And it's like when you start to recognize people, you always leave things out. But just a few ways that came to my mind. You know, VCC, we tithe to missions. Whatever comes into this church, we tithe 10% directly to missions. First thing we do is tithe it to missions. You're giving of alms, giving to needs, you know, special events, special needs, just like we did in receiving this offering this morning. That money is not going to go to the church. Not one dime of that money will stay in the church. Every penny of whatever came into that offering is going to go to families in need. That's what we did last week when we received an offering for Tim Daniels and his wife Maya and their children to relocate. Every dime of that just goes to them. Every dime. And by the way, what a generous offering. We received for them. They were so blessed. Over $3,000 was given just to, for them. Amen. And there is never a time when someone comes and visits here, or speaks here, or ministers here, and we receive an offering for them, they don't want to come back. Because they don't get offerings like that hardly anywhere they go. Almost never. And ours are always amazing. Because of us, the generosity in the hearts of the people here in this place. We do it through helping to finance short-term mission trips. We do it through vacation Bible school. You know, we have all those kids come for a whole week and, and not one dime of any of the offerings come to the church. That is all free. Us ministering to our community and our children because of the generosity 
of the people in the church. Every penny that came in went on to the ministry that they chose to support. Paying the staff. You know, <coughs> my dad still asks me after 22 years of being the pastor here, how in the world do they afford to pay you guys full time? Dad, we work for the king. It's no big deal. We work for the king. He wouldn't understand tithing if I tried to tell him. He'd think you're all nuts. The building, this building, for doing ministry. Uh, an expanded, expansion of the building to do ministry. You know, some have uh, expressed a little concern about mustard seed kids because it's costing us a lot of money to start this thing. And it has. But we're going to talk a little bit in a few minutes about sowing and reaping. I believe this church is just sowing into Mustard Seed Kids, that separate entity that will be running in this building, to minister to staff, to family, to parents, and to the kids. We are sowing into the kingdom. And when it says when you sow generously, guess what? You reap bountifully. I don't believe it's going to slow us up one bit to anything God has called us to do. If anything, it's going to accelerate it. Mustard Seed Kids. A little inconvenient, but what a blessing it's going to be. You know, and as we do these things, it takes giving from our resources. It does cost. All those things cost money. They also cost time. I can't even tell you how much time, for example, that this church has given to Mustard Seed Kids through Casey's work in this project resources, material things, and, of course, money. And there's that word money. Some people, as soon as they hear a pastor say the word money, they think, oh, my gosh, how long is he going to speak about money? We've gotten so frustrated by hearing things about televangelists or whoever just preaching about money, give to get and give to get in the wrong way and all of this stuff, money. I want to remind you, and I'm going to talk about money as long as we got you here. But I want to remind you of a couple things. One, the Bible has more than 2,300, 2,300 verses about money, possession, and how to handle it. Matter of fact, if Jesus was your pastor, approximately 15% of his teaching in the Gospels was about money. That would mean I have to get to, whoops, get to, Preach like Jesus preached, that means I get to give eight sermons a year just on money, handling money and the possessions. Then I'd be teaching like Jesus. And we probably should, because if it was that important to Jesus, I wonder if it's still important. Eleven out of his 39 parables, I believe it was 39, parables were about money. And yet as soon as we mention money in a church, people go, yeah, here we go again. That pastor's looking for a raise. Needs a new jet. <laughs> or, or something like that. When you think about what Jesus did, I ask myself the question, why did he spend so much time talking about money? This guy, I mean, do you think there were people out there going, this guy's obsessed with money. All he wants to talk about is money and possessions. Does he speak about it all the time because he wants us to all have a whole bunch of it? 
Oh, there's this camp over here that says, Amen, brother, preach it. That wasn't his motivation. Does he preach it over here all the time because he wants us to all be poor? No. That's as ungodly and wrong as he wants us all to be rich. So if that's not the reasons why he taught about money, why did he do it? I believe it's because he knew and understood that money is really a heart issue. Material goods and money is a heart issue. So what's so important about money? You know, <laughs> I don't have a wallet. I don't have, I don't have a penny on me. Yeah. Anybody got a $100 bill I could use? <laughs> You're too humble. I know you don't want to be you have one. But if I had a $1 bill and a $5 bill and a $10 bill and a $20 bill and a $100 bill, what makes any of them more valuable than the other? They're all on this little sheet of paper with some fancy ink and a whole bunch of other stuff on it. In and of itself, money basically has no value whatsoever. It's only worth what the government says it's worth. And it's only worth what the government says it's worth as long as the government's got any money to tell us what it's worth. How many of you are feeling confident about how much money you have? You know, back in 1992, and I've shared this before, Cindy and I went to Russia on my first mission trip. The ruble, their dollar, the ruble. At one time, they tried to keep the ruble worth three American dollars. When we were there in 1992, one ruble was worth $900. And it went to $1,800. So if you had $30,000 in the bank, what they really had was equivalent of $10,000 in American money. When it went to $1,800 and they had $30,000 in the bank, guess how much money they had? And you've got mathematicians here and these savants. Well, let's just say it went to 20000 That meant they had a buck and a half. And it happened like that. I'm not trying to scare you and say it could happen in America, but it could happen in America. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. My point is, it only has value according to what the, the government says. And essentially, money is morally neutral and morally powerless. So why did God, Jesus spend so much time talking about it? Because he knew what the devil could do with our attitudes towards money. The devil tries to seduce us. And that's when it becomes powerful in a very negative direction. The devil wants you and me to fall in love with money and material goods. There's a reason the Scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil, of all kinds of evil. The love of money. The devil wants you and I to fall in love with money, material goods. So you become a slave to the money, a slave to your material goods, instead of being the master of the money and material goods. As Christians, we believe that everything, every good thing, everything comes from God. And we are to steward that as a master. But so often we become slaves when we're supposed to be the master because all of a sudden 
we've been seduced by the money and material goods. And it becomes evil and powerful. And the flip side of that is when we use money and recognize it for what it is, a blessing from God, a tool given to us from God to bless us, to bless our families, and to advance the kingdom. All of a sudden now it's a very powerful tool, but it's a powerful tool for good and godly things. Just the opposite of what the devil would try to do. Money is important to the extent of how we think about it. Because how we think about it will determine how we use it. And really, money, how we think about it and how we use it is a very clear indication of where we're at spiritually. The Bible, I believe the Bible talks about money. Jesus talks about money so much because he loves us. That's why he does. He talks about money so much because he loves us and does not want something called money or material goods to harm us. That's why he talks about it. That's why he talked about it. 15% of his teaching in his three years on earth was about money and material goods and how to use it, what to do with possessions. He wants us to use it as a tool, as I said, to bless our families, to bless other people. The offering we just took is going to be a blessing to the people that need that. And we get to be part of the blessing. That's how God intends for us to use the money. And to advance the kingdom of God wherever he has us planted or wherever he causes us to be drawn to by his spirit in terms of missions, for example. And everything in our culture especially Everything we do just about to advance the kingdom costs money. And he wants us to use it. That's why he gives it to us. That's why he blesses us. He's giving it to us to steward it well. The Apostle Paul, I think, gives some really practical exhortation and direction in what it means to be generous in God's eyes when it comes to our money. And that's what I want to walk us through this morning as quickly as I can. Starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8. I'm going to just kind of look at the Scripture, make a few comments about what I believe it's saying for us. Starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. And it's interesting. Look how often, watch how often you hear the word grace or gracious in looking at handling money. It's all about a heart attitude and being a heart filled with generosity. Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. He's talking to the church at Corinth, and if you're familiar with the letters in First and Second Corinthians, Paul kind of scolded them a little bit. So he might have even thought they were just a little bit ticked off at him because of the way he scolded them a little bit. And it's interesting to me, he uses the churches in Macedonia as an example of what true generosity looks like. We're so afraid to sometimes use good godly examples because, oh, you're just lifting them up or you're comparing me now and you're judging me now. Well, Paul did this here. 
the churches in Macedonia, Thessalonica, the Philippian church, the church in Berea, those are the churches. They had had purposed in their heart to give. And he says, and listen to this, listen to the, the paradox that seems apparent. First he says that in a greater deal of affliction, affliction, their abundance of joy. Oh, wait a minute. You lost me. In this great ordeal of affliction, there is abundance of joy. Then it goes on and says, and in their deep poverty, they overflowed with a wealth of generosity. Their affliction resulted in great joy. Was The joy couldn't be killed by the affliction. And their great generosity couldn't be stopped because of the poverty. Now, this is where we would say, somebody might say, some pastor, some televangelist might say, therefore, you need to give more. I don't care how broke you are. Get it, put it on your credit card, whatever you need to do. That is just a lie from the pit of hell. And you hear that? Turn the TV off. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, liberally. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. When is the last time you begged somebody to let you give them money? Some of you I know if you've tried, you've ran into that resistance. No, I don't need any help. I'm okay. I mean, no, that's good. I'm good. There's people that need it worse than me. You know, I, I, I used to be a lot like that. That's called pride. I, I hope that's not your reason, but that was my reason. I, I, no, I'm okay. It's good. He says, they gave, begged to give for the favor of participating. And this is not as we had expected. In some translations, the word hoped. You know, when they asked them to consider this, they had a hope that they'd respond. He says, oh, no, 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 not as we expected. I mean, we knew, we saw there was deep poverty. They were in great affliction. They were being persecuted. It really wasn't much fun being them right now. We hoped they might give something. He says, oh, no, they gave way beyond what we had hoped. But notice why they could do that. They had first given themselves to God, and Paul says, to us by the will of God. Have we given ourselves to God like we sort of think we have? God, I am all yours. Everything I have is yours. You've blessed me beyond what I ever could possibly have imagined or deserved. It's all yours. And then you hear that still small voice say, why don't you give? Well, God, it was good hearing from you, but you missed, that must have been for him sitting over there. It says, no, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And just simply asked, what would you have me do? Verse 6, so we urged Titus, Titus was being sent to collect the offering. He says, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in your gracious work as well. So the church at Corinth had knew there was a need, It'd be like if somebody here said, there's a real need here, and we all sat there and go, huh, now that I think about it, yeah, there is a real need there. And then we just, you know, I really would like to give. I, you know, I think I want to give to that need. 
I wonder when they're going to receive the offering. Well, I'm sure eventually maybe they'll ask. And then I'll probably give, maybe. And Paul's saying, no. Until you take the action, all those good intentions, all that well-meaning, all that understanding of the need doesn't mean anything. It says they have had thoughts about it. They've intended to give. They thought it was a good idea. And Paul's saying, now take action. And he repeats this as we go forward. But just as you abound or excel in everything, in faith, utterance, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in the love we inspire in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Notice that's at least the third or fourth time already he's called it a work of grace. A heart of generosity is the work of grace of God in your life. It's a, it's a demonstration of the grace of God in our lives. Generosity. And then he goes on and says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Paul's comparing him to the Macedonian church. He's saying, here's an example of the demonstration of their love, but I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm not twisting your arm. I'm not manipulating you. I don't want to have that. I don't want you to be forced to give a dime. In our culture, we call that taxes. He's saying, no, that's not the way this works. I'm just telling you this in my opinion. And then he goes on and says, let me give you an example of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's grace again. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, there is some theology out there that tries to tell us that Jesus was rich when he walked on earth. That's garbage. He was not rich in the way we would think rich. But he was rich in heaven. He was rich in the glory of God. He was rich in the authority and the power of God. And he laid aside all of that richness, all of that wealth, and he became poor on our behalf. He set aside all that. He left all that, and he came to earth. Why? So that we may be rich. See, I told you we're supposed to all be wealthy. No. That we may be rich. That we might experience the joy of our salvation. That we might experience the glory of God, the peace, the hope, the joy. That we may be rich in the things of God and Christ. That's why he came to earth and and set aside his richness. You know, I'll leave that. And then he goes on in verse 10 and he says, I give my opinion in this matter. And I, I, and I love the way he's done this. He, he does this like three different times. This is an opinion. This is not strong arm tactics. This is not manipulation. This is not you have to or else. He says, in my opinion, I give this to you. This is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also the desire to do it. We've talked about before how grace gives you the desire and the will but you still have to act. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now take action. There's this opportunity for the grace of God to be manifested through you in your generosity to advance the kingdom of God. And when we respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit like that, guess what? We are blessed. We get blessed. 
He says, but now finish doing it so that just as there was with the readiness to desire to do it, that there may be also in the completion of it by your ability. For if this readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what it does not have. God's not in, impressed by how much or how little we have. He just says, give in accordance of your ability what the Holy Spirit lays on your heart. You know, you might write a check for a million dollars, but if you got a bank of pants about 300 and 400 million dollars, it's nice. But if you've got $10 to your name and you give $10 to something, you gave it all. It's kind of like the widow's mite. Gave it all. And I'm not saying that's what we're supposed to do, but he's saying do as you get purpose in your heart. And verse 13 goes on, and this, again, I'm just sharing my personality and my feelings a lot on these, but I think, I think it's important that there's transparency. If you're giving to an organization such as a church, you should be able to know anything about where that money goes at any time you want. And the reason I, one of the reasons I think that is here we see, is starting in verse 16, Paul is saying to them, here's the cause. I want you to know what it is. He says, for this is not for the ease of others and for your own affliction, but by way of equality. Now, when you see that word, that does not mean communism or socialism. Calvin said it this way. He says that nobody starves and nobody hoards his abundance at another's expense. When you look in the scriptures, when they all gave, it wasn't that they could all be exactly equal. It was that everybody's need would be met. And that's what's being talked about here. We're not asking you to give so they benefit and you suffer. That's not why. We're asking you to give because you have a surplus and you can bless those that have a shortage. And you're both blessed in the process. So know the reason you're giving. At your present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality. And then he uses an example from Exodus when they were out gathering the manna. He says, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. As a matter of fact, if you know the story, if you gathered too much, it rotted and turned into worms. I'm just saying. (laughs) You know what bank you're putting it in. I'm going to jump to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. And this is where he talks about the principle of sowing and reaping. A church that was part of the True Bridge a few years back was saving to add on to their building. And it had just been plodding along, and they had $10,000 after two, three years. And they were praying about another church. And the pastor thought he heard the Lord. Can you guess what the Lord told him? Give that $10,000 to that other church. And he told his elder board, and they all rebelled and quit. No, they all prayed, and they thought, you know what? This is the Lord. And they released that $10,000 to another church, and they, as they sowed, they reaped. God opened the doors financially because of a total act of faith. Is there a principle of giving to get? Hear me clearly. The answer is yes. But it's all about the motivation in giving to get. 
There is a sowing and reaping principle of the Word of God that is absolutely true. As you sow, you will receive. He who sows sparingly will receive sparingly. He who sows abundantly will receive abundantly. But it's about the heart. I sure could use a million dollars. I heard some preacher say there's a hundredfold return. Let's see, that means I have to give ten grand. I think I can mortgage the house and do that. God will not honor that for a moment. It's greed. It's all an attitude of the heart. He's, now this is, I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, not forced, manipulated. Third time he said that. For God loves a cheerful giver. You know, every time I hear that, I kind of smile inside, and it's not because I'm cheerfully waiting to give more, but I think, you know, what? Cheerful giver. Then I realize that this is how God gives. He gives with great joy, with great cheer. I, I, I can only imagine how much joy and how cheerful it makes him to be able to bless you and me every day with whatever we need. He promises, I will meet your needs. And as he pours out his needs, I can only imagine how God must smile when we go, whoa, where did this come from? What a lucky day. I knew I should have bet on those numbers. Not true. Cheerful giver, because that's how God gives. And God is able to make, in verse 8, all grace, there it is again, it's grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency, and a better translation maybe than the word sufficiency is contentment. Having all contentment in everything. When we give generously out of a right heart, God blesses us. I mean, how do you feel, moms and dads, on Christmas when you get a gift from the kids versus when they open the gift you gave them and they just light up and they just go crazy and they're jumping up and down. They run over and hug and kiss you, which was much more of a blessing. Receiving that pair of socks? No. (laughs) Or watching them. Giving. And then it goes on and says, all sufficiency in everything that you may have an abundance for every good deed. So you would have an abundance that you can give it away. And as it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower, and this is really a point I wanted to stress, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Notice, he provides seed for the sower. Don't eat your seed. What kind of farmer would you be if you had a plot of land and here comes the seed and you ate it all? Well, when I get a little bit more to sow, then I'll sow. No, notice he first gives seed for sowing. That's the seed to give away. And then it says, what's he do? Then he provides bread and food to each one. He supplies as we sow. Many of us wait for the supply Before we ever sow. Don't eat your seed. Michael Fletcher wrote in one of his books, he wrote it this way. Don't eat your seed. He gives seed to the sower, but notice the order. He supplies as you sow. Many wait for supply before they sow, but it does not work that way. You sow first. 
You will be enriched, it says in the end of this verse, in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And I'm going to close with verses 12, 13, and 14, and 15. It says this, and notice the results of your generosity. That's what I want us to see here. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, it is supplying the needs of the saints, but it's not just that. It is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Meets the needs of the saints, now it's overflowing into thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all. Giving was an evidence of the reality of the gospel of Christ in your heart. As the grace of God was there to give generously, it affirmed their statement of faith that they really did believe. And then it goes on and says, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. They pray for you. Paul is telling the church, and he's reminding the church at Corinth, that God had moved on your hearts to desire to do this. He'd moved on your hearts to make you want to do this and and give you the will to do it. He says, now take action. And when you do, the needs will be met. God will get thanks. There will be a confirmation of the power of gospel in your own lives to act obediently. And these people are going to pray for you. Our financial giving is all about a heart of generosity, and it's all a grace gift from God. We do not give out of compulsion or obligation or manipulation. I hope you never hear or feel that from anybody that shares in this church about our giving. Jesus taught about it because it is an important part of advancing the kingdom, and it's an important part of his grace being released through us that we might receive blessing. You can't outgive God, sounds like a cliche, but guess what? God is not going to owe any man anything. He's not that kind of God. We give to get, but we give to get out of a heart of generosity, not a heart of greed. And so many things have been abused, been abused by so many preachers, televangelists, all of those things. And I think when we look at Paul's instruction and admonition, it's just clear how we purpose in our heart to give out of the abundance we have to advance the kingdom. He will bless us to meet the needs of our family, to meet the needs of others, and to advance the kingdom. I've shared this before, but Jim McCracken in my early years in pastoring, and I always say, what do you do when this issue comes up? He says, have already taught about it. Teach about it when your church is healthy. Don't wait until you're in a mess. I got to tell you, church, we are a generous church. You are a generous group of people. We have never had a shortfall in our finances, and we just keep advancing and doing more things because of the generosity but I've got to give you a heads up. God isn't through with us yet. He has bigger plans for this group of people and for this church so that we can make an even bigger impact in the kingdom where we're living here in southwest Minnesota, but beyond where we're living in southwest Minnesota. 
So I just want to encourage you and thank you for your generosity. God will bless you as he blesses this church, as we as a church remain generous. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you and praise you for your word and the writings that are in your word, the teaching that's in your word. God, I I pray that you would wash out of our minds any false, erroneous teaching about finances and giving. God, that we would see your principles. We would understand your word. Father, that we would realize it's a gift of grace from you that you promise in your word to meet every need that we have. Lord, I thank you for the generosity in this body of believers. God, I pray that it would even increase that the blessings may abound in their lives, that every need that they might have, Father, would be met. And if not directly by you, but by the hands and feet of brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray all of this that you'd receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.